One more quick little reinforcement of one of the announcements, um, and this one's directed at the men in particular, because one of the obstacles sometimes that there can be for a women's retreat is the husbands, okay? So men, don't be an obstacle to your wife going on the retreat, okay? But rather, it's an opportunity to serve and bless your wife, even if that means bearing a heavy load at home with little children in some cases, okay? So your wife might be a little bit afraid of leaving because maybe you just need to step it up. (laughs) Maybe you need to feel for a day and a half what it's like as far as what she goes through on a on an average day, will give you much greater appreciation for your wife and all that she does, and she will come back, and you'll be so happy to see her. She will have been blessed. You will have been blessed to be realizing how blessed you are to have her doing all that she does, and you'll be so much more gracious and patient with her when you come home. Anyway, and on and on and on, okay? So just encourage all of our women to make this a priority. It's going to be a great blessing Um, The woman who we have coming is a great teacher. So a time to feed your soul on God's Word and to to really build and strengthen our relationships in the church, which are so important. So if again, if cost is prohibitive at all, please don't let that get in the way. Um, Talk to Jean Lee or Linda. Um, So just want to reinforce that and put a nice thick underline under that announcement, especially to the men. Okay. All right. Have you <laughs> have you ever wanted that? I, I I actually mean this somewhat jokingly, but somewhat seriously as well, because in this case that I'm thinking, it was nearly true. Have you ever wanted to kill the one who you were hosting? Okay. Okay. It's a little funny, but have you ever? had some hospitality, whether that's someone who stayed with you for a short amount of time or a long period of time, maybe too long, where it wasn't here, by the way. Um, it was a tough situation back at our, our former location. Um, we did have someone live with us, and there was a point where I wanted to kill him. Um, <laughs> and there was good reason, but anyway, I, I won't go into it any further. But the point is, is that hospitality is sometimes very hard. Which is why I think in 1 Peter 4, 9, have you ever noticed this? It says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Thank you, Lord. You're such a realist. You know where we live. You know what it's like to actually, with regularity and perseverance, to extend hospitality to people. Oftentimes, it's really hard to do. And it's easy to start to get annoyed and frustrated and exasperated and to grumble and complain. Okay, so here's the question as we enter into this text in Luke 14. Where does the grace come from to love in scenarios like that, to love for the long haul, to love repeatedly, especially when you've been burned in the past? Where does the grace come from to love, to be hospitable, to serve, and to do it perseveringly and gladly? (laughs) Because you can be glad the first time, then you get burned, and you start to get jaded over time, and you pull back. Has that ever happened to anybody? Okay, so where does the grace come for? for 
grace come from to love, to serve, to be hospitable, to reach out with perseverance and joy like Jesus. Well, there's a lot of grace here in our text this morning, so we're going to look at it together. Luke chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. If you're using a pew Bible, um, it's found on page 1041. So if you turn there, we'll read the text together, and then I will pray again briefly, and we'll, we'll dive in. <clears throat> it happened that when Jesus went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man. And then in disgrace you pr proceed to occupy the last place. But when you're invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return. And that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Let's pray. Oh God, pray that you would please incline our hearts to your testimonies, to your words. This morning, we may be inclined right now to think of and be reminded of and be concerned about a thousand other things. And yet, through your word, you are speaking to us right now. And I pray that, that we would be inclined to listen, to be attentive to you. Please, Father, open our eyes by your Spirit to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ so that beholding him, we would be transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to the next. Would you please unite our divided hearts Help us to be all in following Jesus, not withholding any aspect of life from his good lordship. And Lord, this morning, would you please satisfy us with your steadfast love in and through Christ. 
that we would rejoice in you and that we would be glad to extend to others the love you've shown to us. So we need your help. We need you to teach and speak and change us. So we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've been walking through Luke here, and Jesus, there's this decisive turn in chapter 9, verse 51, where he has set his face for Jerusalem. So that has some ominous overtones because he's going to suffer and die in Jerusalem. So also, along with this, as he's heading back to Jerusalem from Galilee, the opposition is increasing. So as you follow along, chapters 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, the opposition is increasing. Mild diplomatic responses to Jesus and his presence and his words and his actions is, make, is, is becoming more and more difficult. <laughs> you can't be mildly approving or disapproving of Jesus. The sides are getting clearer. He's driving a wedge. And so actually the opposition is getting hardened in their opposition. You're either for him or against him. Okay, so the Pharisees, other religious leaders, they're getting more and more hardened in that opposition. And yet, here they are inviting him to a dinner, to the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. So look first there at this living parable, this man who stands in the midst of this, this dinner party. Oddly enough, what is he doing there? He's a living parable. How is that the case? Look at verses four, 1 to 4. It happened that when... Jesus went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath. So this would have been after the meeting in the synagogue. They invited him over to eat bread. They were watching him closely. And if you're reading ESV, you see it. If you're reading NAS for some strange reason, because NAS is often, is typically very um, literal in its translation, there's a little word there that says, that, that should be translated, behold. Okay, so in ESV, you see it. In NAS, for some reason, you don't. Okay? It's repeated like 50, 60 times in Luke. It's really important. One of these days I'm going to talk about what's going on there. Um, but here you go. They're watching him closely, and yet, oh, look, behold, there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered, which is odd, isn't it? Nobody's asked a question yet. And spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of this man and healed him and sent him away. So, first question, what is this guy doing here? They're watching Jesus closely. And, oh, look, at the home of a ruler of the Pharisees, there's this man suffering from dropsy. So we ought to be thinking, what's this guy doing here? The language is really interesting. Jesus answered Who's he answering? No one had a question. Or had they, in a sense, implicitly posed a question? Is he responding to, answering their setup? Okay, we don't know for sure, but it's quite possible because of the language that's kind of tipping us off, it's quite possible that they actually were setting Jesus up, which is why they're watching him closely. Okay, if he just dropped in, it still ends up in the same place. Although, again, it would be a bit odd because... This man, they were hyper-scrupulous about purity laws, and this guy would be unclean. So, before we finish that thought about, you know, why is Jesus, quote-unquote, answering 
um, some question, we should ask, what's going on with this man in front of Jesus? Do you know what dropsy is? I didn't know what dropsy was. Um, It's a bit of an outdated term, actually, medically. Um, It's not a disease per se, but rather refers to the effects of something something that's really wrong underneath it. So it's edema, okay, swelling of the body, oftentimes in the extremities that comes from, um, it can come from congestive heart failure, from cirrhosis of the liver, kidney disease, um, other issues as well can be the cause. So we don't know what the the cause of this man's swelling was, but we do know a little about the nature of the condition that would be relevant at that time for people who were there or for people who are reading this, especially in the first century. They knew the um, connotations with dropsy, how his condition would have been viewed. So conditions like this that this man had made him an outsider. Okay? In fact, it was not uncommon to interpret the suffering of dropsies as the judgment of God. Okay? So they were richly unclean, they're impure, this man is bloated and swollen. And really, there is actually a sad irony in this condition. The man with dropsy was bloated because of retaining too much fluid, and yet he would have an insatiable thirst. So quenching the thirst per se is not the answer to his problem. More and more fluid actually makes the condition worse. So maybe you can begin to see how his condition was actually a living parable for these Pharisees themselves. We'll consider that, come back to it in just a moment. So here's the Pharisees, the law experts. Okay, when it says lawyers, it doesn't mean, you know, corporate law or whatever we associate with lawyers or litigators. This was people that were experts in the Old Testament law. They're plotting. Back in Luke 11, when he left there, the scribes, the lawyers, and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. That's where their orientation is right now, and this is no different. They're opposed to him. They invited him to this Sabbath dinner, and they did it as a setup. They're watching him carefully. It's the Sabbath. He does stuff on the Sabbath that tends to, you know, put him out of their approval, and here, we're going to have more evidence for our case. So they're trying to set him up, and yet they get hung on the horns of the dilemma that they try to hang Jesus on. Jesus basically says, you want to set me up to catch me in order to to prosecute and kill me? Well, let me turn this back on you and set you up. That's what Jesus is going to do. And yet there's not a shred of vindictiveness in this reversal. Just watch Jesus' attitude in this. Okay? Because my setup of you Pharisees and scribes is not going to hurt you. It, It may humiliate you, and you need that. But it's not intended to hurt you. It's actually intended once again to extend help to you if you'll have it. Okay? So do you want to know what I'll do with this unclean man on the Sabbath? Jesus says, Perfect. I'm so glad he dropped in. Just the type I like to eat with. The unclean, the marginalized. I mean, by the way, I'm eating with you spiritually bloated blokes, aren't I? So thank you, Pharisees and scribes, for the segue. I appreciate it. Joel Green does a good job of pulling this all together. Listen to his comments. Already in antiquity, The paradoxical fate of the person with dropsy was proverbial. 
Nothing is as dry as a person with dropsy, signifying the insatiable thirst of one whose body is already retaining too much fluid. And also known in antiquity is the metaphorical use of dropsy as a label for money lovers, the greedy, the rapacious, which is exactly what Jesus said of them not long ago. That is, for persons who share the very condition for which the Pharisees are indicted in the Gospel of Luke, back in chapter 11, 37 to 44. You can look at that later. Again, it's going to come up again in, in chapter 16. Um, one writer at the time, back then, said, Diogenes compared money lovers to dropsies, as dropsies, though filled with fluid, crave drink. So money lovers, though loaded with money, crave more of it, yet both to their demise. So what you're really thirsty for doesn't actually fix or slake the thirst. It actually further destroys you. Okay? So the presence of the dropsical man would constitute a vivid parable of Jesus' socially elite pharisaical table companions. Just as in front of Jesus stood a man who had dropsy, so around the table sat persons whose disorder was no less self-detrimental. As Jesus moves to heal the one... So with regard to the others is diagnosis pronounced and the prospect of health extended. Do you see this? Do you see how this man was a living parable? So he turns it on them graciously, not merely to just pin them to the wall, but again to extend the very thing that they need and yet they're blinded to. So Jesus is going to, in this section, he's going to expose and he's going to subvert their entire value system, okay? Before he unpacks their value system in terms of words and some analogies of the time with, you know, if your son was in the ditch on a Sabbath or, you know, if you invite people to a a meal, before he does that, he's actually going to enact his welcome and healing of this very man. So he's going to explain his hospitality later, the hospitality of his kingdom. He's going to actually enact that hospitality with this man before he explains it. You see? So there's a living parable front-loaded for us. The irony of this healing draws our attention to actually another irony in the passage. The fact that the observers are being observed. The observers are actually under the microscope. Okay? Look again at the context here, and we'll kind of read quickly through verses 1 to 7 and note a few places. So they invite Jesus to this meal. They're watching him closely. And behold, oh, look, look, there's this man. What's he doing there? Jesus answers. They're silenced. They could make no reply. And then verse 7, and he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed You're watching me closely. I'm watching you. (laughs) So the observers are being observed. See, these people, these leaders are self-assured observers, and yet they are the ones being observed. It's like this. Use a little bit of an extended analogy here, okay? It's like someone very small, okay, and, and in their pride, they are very small. They are on... The stage of the microscope. Remember high school? That's called the stage, you know, where you put the little slide. Okay, so they're on the stage of the microscope, staring back through the lens and examining the observer. 
and the observer, obviously, if you've ever looked through binoculars backwards or whatever, the observer would look very small and distant. All the while, they are actually the ones being observed. They were looking at his actions and words. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? We'll catch him. We'll judge him. And all the while, he was looking into their hearts. Okay? So this is not unlike, I don't want to press this too far here, but this is not unlike when we put God in the dock. Maybe some of you, if you're not, you know, wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or if you just kind of doubt this stuff, this might particularly apply to you, but also it can apply to all of us as, as believers at different times, especially when we suffer. Okay, and sometimes in our doubts, you know, whether it's with the problem of evil and suffering or whatever it is, we can try to put God in the dock and we start judging Him. Okay, God is not a God of random chance and purposeless pain. So if we ever feel like we're getting backed into a corner and we start to rage at our circumstances, does that ever happen to any of you? Which is really kind of a thinly veiled way to hide our rage at God for allowing those circumstances, we would do well to remember that He just might have wise and loving purposes to open our eyes to see the things that we really need to see. Okay? So think about that microscope. When we, th- when we sometimes are tempted to judge God, what He's doing or not doing, like these guys were doing, we can be like the person on the stage of the microscope. We squirm a little bit. There's this annoyingly bright, intense heat underneath us on that stage. So we squirm. We look up through the lens, and God is small and distant. We don't like what we see, but God is at work to humble us and to prepare us, and He so often flips that lens for us. And what happens when he flips it like he was trying to do for these guys, we see two things. We see God's bigness and his wisdom. And sometimes we only see it in hindsight, right? We see that he's the great observer and we are not his judges. It's like Job. Whoa. Put my hand over my mouth. And then, again, I know this thing breaks down multiple levels. Don't be picky. Okay, give me a little slack here. And then also what we see is ourselves more clearly on the stage under the microscope. We see that, oh, that bright heat underneath us is actually intended to illuminate who we really are so that we can be worked on. So we we see more clearly who God is and all of his greatness and wisdom, and we see more clearly who we are and, and just as is the case with the Pharisees here, Jesus did not do this in some sort of vindictive gotcha sense. He's not doing that with the, with the Pharisees. He goes on to say, hey, when you're an invited guest, when you're a host, let me tell you about my kingdom. Would you please open your eyes and see? Okay, he's not just lambasting them. And the same with us. When he wants to turn that lens to show us himself and ourselves truly, he does it graciously, patiently. Okay, he is eating with these guys. He is offering them, even though they're trying to catch him, he's offering them as he turns it 
on them, sets them up as it were. He does it in order to offer them his inside-out, upside-down kingdom. He does it for gracious purposes. And so the same thing with us. The next time you feel like you're backed in the corner, the next time you feel like God is just, you know, trying to pick you apart and dissect you, you might want to remember that he is wise and big and loving, and he might just be setting you up to turn that lens and show you yourself and himself in all of his wisdom and glory. Okay? So, they obviously didn't repent and align themselves with him. We need to humble ourselves before him as he teaches us and allow him to shape our values as we seek first his kingdom. And that's exactly where he goes in verses 7 to 14, telling us, us about the nature of his kingdom. So, quick little note of the structure here. Verses 7 to 11 are headed, in verse 7, he's speaking to the invited guests. You see that? Verse 7. And then verses 12 to 14, he's speaking to the host, the one who had invited him. So we end up in different positions at different times in our lives. When we would be on the invitation side, we need to hear that message. When we might be on the host side, we need to hear that message. So we need to hear both of these things. And all of it is intended to show us the values of the kingdom. So first the instruction of the guest, then to the host. Verses 7 to 11. Jesus began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you're invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who's invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Little explanation of the furniture at the time, okay? Um, at a meal like this, you'd have what's called the triclinium. Okay, so these tables that would seat three people, they're low. So I'm going to try to do this up here. You might need to look up. So it was organized in a U shape, Okay? This would be the place of honor. That's where the host would sit, right in the center at the top or the bottom of the U, depending on how it's oriented, okay? You get this? U, okay? So you would have one triclinia there, and depending on how big the party was, how big the room is, you might have just two more, or you might have a few more and then a few more like this. You see how that works? And the honor... The relative honor and status of the, the positions on that table had to do with your proximity to the host and so forth. So there was, this is all clearly laid out. Everybody knew this. So, for instance, you know, they would, how do you do this? Okay. They would all, you know, recline like this at the table. Actually, their feet would be kind of kicked back. So the table's here. And the, the place of highest honor, here and here. Okay just to the left, just to the right of the host. And then there was a whole protocol for where it went from there. Okay, so they all knew this. So the guests, when they come in, take this seating process very seriously. We don't, we don't do this, but don't hold it at arm's length because we've got the same heart issues, okay? We'll get to those in a minute. So when the guests would come in and take their seats, they took it very seriously because they could risk 
losing status if they don't take this process seriously. So if you take too high a seat too quickly and a guest of higher status comes in after you, you might get displaced, but by then all the other seats might be taken up and guess where you get? You're in the last spot, the lowest spot, okay? Nevertheless, there's also calculation here. You've got to calculate, well, if you really want to climb a little bit on the ladder, you might want to risk a little reach today because if it's granted, then your status has improved publicly and you have more honor. It's been publicly affirmed. So Jesus observed this happening. He watched them do it that day. And so Jesus responds with, don't take such and such a seat. You could be dishonored. At first, if you were them, they might actually think, well, this is the first helpful thing he's had to say. He's meeting them right where they're at. They don't want social and public dishonor. They do want social and public honor. Maybe they'll even take him up on this bit of advice. But guess what? There is absolutely no grace required to apply this wisdom if you cut it off from verse 11. What Jesus is doing here is meeting them where they're at. Social public honor is what they want. To avoid dishonor is what they want. And actually, what they want is not wrong down at the very bottom in its purest form yet it's been completely perverted and twisted by their sinful nature. Okay, so follow me here. Just as greed is self-destructive, okay, and yet if we really believe the promises of God, we ought to go after true riches. Why do we actually not lay up treasure in heaven and we lay up treasure on earth? Because we're too easily pleased. Do you see this? The problem is that I'm qualifying this with quotes. We're not greedy enough. We don't believe. We're far too easily pleased. Just as honor-seeking is self-destructive, and yet, if we really believe the promises of God, we ought to go after the truest and highest honor. If you want to be great, our Scripture reading from this morning in Mark 9 and 10, you'll be the servant of all, the slave of all. So, verses 7 to 10 are like finding the crack. Have you ever split wood? And you, if it's a big piece, you need a wedge. You find that crack so that you're going with the grain. You stick it in there, and then you hammer the wedge down in. Verses 7 to 10, in a sense, are finding the crack. And verse 11 is the wedge to hammer down through that crack to drive it home. In other words, Jesus is lovingly pinning them to the wall. <laughs> just like he did with the comment about the sun or the ox on the Sabbath day. They thought they were setting him up. They thought they were watching him closely. Oh, we'll make sure this... Let's see what he does with this guy. It's a Sabbath. He's going to heal again. Watch. And Jesus said, what about you with your son or your ox on a Sabbath? Would you, would you pull it out of the ditch, out of the well? Of course you would. So they're silenced by his questions and his arguments. And so the real question is, what's really driving your opposition? You're silent. You don't have a reply. So there's something else driving your opposition to me. So here, you want honor, not dishonor. Then why not embrace the values of the kingdom? 
being a slave of all and having no thought to social markers of in and out, high and low? Why not radically love everyone? Why not be the slave of all? That is the path to truest and highest honor before the entire universe. How's that for public? Don't you want public honor? Don't you want to avoid public dishonor like depart from me, I never knew you? Isn't that what you want? (laughs) You see how he's setting them up lovingly to try to wake them up from their blindness and their spiritual sleep. So we don't have the same table fellowship dynamics in our culture, but we do have the same honor-shame dynamics in our hearts. Okay, we play these games to get ahead, to get in, to avoid shame and exclusion, to gain honor and status. And Jesus is putting us under the microscope here in order to show us our smallness when that's what we're after and to show us his bigness and the bigness of his promises. So if we see it, we're going to be freed from the slavish commitment to puffing up and protecting our image and reputation before people. We're going to throw that all to the wind and love people no matter what it costs us. I mean, are there, just to make sure you're not holding this out at arm's length, hopefully you're tracking so far here. Are there any weird politics in your family or in your neighborhood or at your work or in some club that you belong to where if you associated with Let's say maybe in your neighborhood, I mean, you can multiply the examples. If you had so-and-so over and you didn't have a chance to interpret it for thus and such, they might think that, uh, and then you just drop down a notch in their eyes. And you don't want to be out of their favor. And these people, it really doesn't matter what they think. We play these games. What if we just stop playing those games? I mean, if, do you come into a room at work or, you know, at a work party or something and, and there's just like, do you, do you need to talk to the right people? And I mean, just what kind of stuff goes on in your head? Do we peg people? Do we put them in their, their kind of status locations? What if we stop playing those games? What if actually we just threw caution to the wind and sought and stretched and grasped for humility? What if we sought to be ladder climbers in the downward direction? What if we sought to love everyone indiscriminately, not giving special treatment to the haves who might benefit us in some way, and not withholding loving treatment from the have-nots who can't benefit us in any way, and maybe who threaten to reduce our status in the eyes of others? I actually, just this story just popped to mind. It's always dangerous. Um, It's not that huge of a story. But there's an interesting um, illustration with a professor who just hated the kind of political games and status games in the academy. And so he was at some conference, and there's a um, young undergraduate asking him a question. You know, and sometimes you know, the undergraduates. I think it was philosophy, so infamous for, you know, Captain Obvious. Oh, okay, thank you very much. Um, And you can kind of roll your eyes. But this man was loving this lowly, you know, beginning graduate student of philosophy. 
and some high-powered, you know, published so-and-so type other doctor academic came up and just kind of butted in on the conversation. And this professor was a believer. And he just dismissed him because he was wanting to love the person right in front of him. This is an example of some of these dynamics. So, what if we embrace this wholeheartedly? Loving everyone indiscriminately regardless of, of the impact, the effects. So that leads us right into how Jesus addresses the host. Look at verses 12 to 14. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, and, and by the way, this is, don't think it's just one thing in, in particular. Jesus is, is kind of throwing some, some typical examples so that you start thinking about this. It's not just having to do with wedding feasts for the people invited. It's not just having to do with luncheons or dinners because down a little bit further, he says, when you give a reception. Okay, so he's talking about all kinds of events like this. When you give a luncheon or dinner, don't invite your friends or neighbors or relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return. That will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So Jesus is making the same point again, only this time from the vantage point of the host. The guests, as he watched and noticed, were driven by these unwritten rules of social status and honor. But so were the hosts, this host. Okay, these rules oftentimes dictated the making of the invitation list, the guest list. The guests attended for self-serving purposes. The hosts invited for self-serving purposes. That was the problem. So Jesus makes the same point. Verse 11 is like a hinge. It goes backward and forward. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. It takes no grace to love and be hospitable to and to give to those who will make a return on your quote-unquote investment of time or hospitality or service. That's not hospitality in the kingdom. That's not generosity. Remember back to Luke 6? Listen to this. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? If you, were, if you were here way back when we were in chapter 6, that word credit is actually grace in Greek. It doesn't take any grace to love those who love you because the Gentiles do that. The, everybody does that. Anybody can do that. Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what grace? It doesn't take any grace. What credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to, re- in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, except for the fact that your reward will be very great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful." So this is completely counter to the reigning social ethics of the time, and those ethics are more ingrained in us than we want to admit sometimes. Listen to, uh, to Green explain here some of these dynamics. He says, apart from certain relations within the family unit and discussions of ideal friendship, gifts, by unwritten definition, were never free but were given and received with either explicit or implicit strings attached. Expectations of reciprocity were naturally extended to the table. 
To accept an invitation was to obligate oneself to extend a comparable one, a practice that circumscribed the list of those to whom one might extend an invitation. So Jesus is just completely blowing that up. He's subverting it. Okay? He is messing with the insider-outsider dynamics. Okay? And he's showing how in his kingdom it is radically, gloriously inclusive where anyone and everyone can come. So these meals here in chapter 14 and in the Gospel of Luke as a whole, these meals end up being a picture of the Gospel for everyone to see. The way that Jesus does meals is like a parable of the Gospel. That shameful slander, oh, he's a friend of sinners and a glutton and a drunkard, that was actually evidence of the glory of the Gospel. Okay, where there's exaltation of the humble, where there's inclusion of the excluded. So if we are seeking first his kingdom, there's tons of implications for us. Okay? Just we've got to be honest with ourselves. We've got to know our hearts and say, do we sometimes use hospitality or giving gifts or serving people in order to use that service for our ends? Is hospitality to be used for our own ends or used for the good of others? Do we bless people or do we use people? Do we give or take in our giving? Do we give really in our giving or are we seeking to take and receive in our giving? Are we buying shares of control? So what drives your giving? What drives, think gifts, think time, etc. What drives your hospitality? When you come into a church What drives who you gravitate to? What about in your neighborhood? What drives who you have over? We've got to stop taking our cues from a self-serving world, stop taking our cues from our own self-serving hearts, and start taking our cues from our self-giving Savior. Aren't you glad that Jesus isn't looking for the (laughs) A-list? I love 1 Corinthians 1, such a sweet, powerful passage. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh or according to this world, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. We can only boast in the cross. Okay, so last point. Where does the power to live this way come from? It comes from... Humility and grace, because Jesus' humility and grace will produce humility and grace in us, okay? comes from the gospel. The gospel empowers and models this humble, hospitable life for us, okay? Jesus is not calling us to do anything that he hasn't done, okay? He had the ultimate status. He was equal with God, okay? So, Philippians 2 says, Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be used to his own advantage and held on to. Instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So he had ultimate status, and he set it all aside to lift us up, to give us true and eternal status. He welcomed and despised the shame so that he could honor us with his grace and adopt us as his children. Okay? He impoverished himself to enrich our poverty. He honored us despite our shameful sin. He was cast out in order to bring us in, to include us, the excluded. So if you are tempted, or if I'm tempted to ignore people, or to treat another person with contempt rather than with hospitality and welcome and love, we need to remember how contemptible we were (laughs) when Jesus invited us to his table. Do you ever, I mean, this is like on the ground this week, we, we really need to remember how contemptible. In fact, if someone is contemptible, let them show you what you were. <laughs> like, connect those dots. Oh, so that's what I looked like when Jesus welcomed me. So are we too busy to invite the needy to our table? Praise God, he was not too busy. Is it scary to go out on an unfamiliar limb? Might the Almighty God go with us there? Because this is obviously his heart. Is it too costly? Hospitality and serving and loving and giving like this is costly. And you can get burned. Our God spared no expense. He is able to make all grace abound to us so that we will have all we need for every good work. So therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, if you get filled up with gospel grace, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarding another, one another, as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Okay, and as you do, because it's going to get smelly and messy and frustrating and tiring and annoying, etc. Don't ever forget that Jesus welcomed you. Contemptible, rapacious, <laughs> um, everything that that person might be, that was you. And then also don't forget that Jesus who humbled himself was also exalted and he promises that those who humble themselves will be exalted in due time. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Just like it says in verse 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So we're going to close by singing Tis So Sweet to, to Trust in Jesus. And I think there's a dual edge as we sing this song. One, if we really realize how outside, how contemptible, ugly, unlovable we were before Jesus welcomed us into his table, we are going to sing This Is Really Sweet. But also, the other edge is, as we taste the sweetness of the grace at the table that we don't deserve to sit at, Jesus is saying, will you be an extension of that hospitality to those around you? 
like I was. Okay, so it's sweet, yes, and it's a call to love like Jesus has called us to love in this section. So let's close with that song.